Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan, and I'm here once again with... Sky Sky. Sky Sky. All right. (laughs) It's going to be a good day. It is. I have a confession to make. Tell by the way that you introduce yourself. What's your your confession? I actually forgot last time what my favorite show really was. Uh I know. Should I say? You should. You should say. We the the people need to know. <sighs> yes, and it it literally has bugged me ever since. It is Kenneth Clark's Civilization. I think there's twelve, thirteen parts to it. I've watched them several when, times. When did it? When was that a thing? <laughs> I think in the seventies. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it makes sense. I love it. I recommend <laughs> it. Please watch it, everybody. Go. You got something to watch this weekend now. <sighs> yes. Where do you find that? Amazon? I think so. Get it on Amazon yeah. Prime. Yeah, I had a physical copy. I heard it here. Yes. <laughs> Got another question for you. Okay. Have you ever been mentioned in the newspaper? A few times. Yeah. Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and which one do I mention? I mentioned the birding thing. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think. Utah's youngest birder. Or whatever, yeah. I mean, what did that article look like? (laughs) I know. Skylar Hamilton is a birder unlike any other. Yeah, and it was... A little picture, a little Skylar with your (laughs) binoculars on. (laughs) I had one of my best friends um, had a case, a gun case. I was subpoenaed in. I was was the friend mentioned in the Seattle Times or whatever. Yeah. and, of course, it was interesting. The media never mentioned what the case really was, which mm. just, it's funny that we trust the media, but anytime it talks about us, we know that it's not trustworthy. Yep. <laughs> you know? If you ever see me in the news, yeah. it's not true. It's funny. So here's the one I'll mention. I ran for city council once. Mm. And um, it was funny. You know, I have this When prepared. was this? This was probably 10 years ago. You ran for city council. Yeah, with long hair. Orem? Provo? Orem. Orem. It was crazy. Okay. It, it was a crazy time, yeah. honestly. Um, and I remember I had this huge prepared thing. I even, um, you know, thought, oh, man, these are some lines to repeat. And, of course, when the media article is written about the mm-hmm. event, I mean, it's like some thoughtless quote that mm-hmm. <laughs> no one should care about. Yep. Or what about you? Uh, I've been in the news a few times. I guess newspaper is the yes. question. I think the only couple times I was in the newspaper was for baseball when nice. I was a kid. I'd be in like, I'd be on these travel teams or I was on one team that went to play in a regional tournament in Louisiana. I was nice. in the news, you know, or any time like our team would win the local championship, there'd be articles about it. That's all I got. Nothing nothing super exciting. What was your position? Uh, I played, well, when I was a kid, I played a lot of first base. Uh, did some pitching. When I got older, started playing third base mostly. So, yeah. Nice. Which one Never did you... played much outfield. I was too slow for that. Just... <laughs> um, yeah. I was always a skinny kid, but I was like a really slow skinny kid. It was very depressing. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to be fast here, but yeah, I was always really slow. So anyways, my favorite thing to do was hit. I was a batting was, that was my jam that was your thing. right there. So it's awesome. 
All right. Well, let's get into it. So we are going to be covering the week of January 16th to the 22nd, uh, which this um, podcast will be published hopefully on the 18th, which means that we are finally in the week that we should be in if you are following along in real time. Some people will be listening later. That's fine. You'll be able to glean just as much regardless of when you're listening to this. But uh, our goal is to eventually be posting the podcast a week ahead of time, basically, so that you know if you are studying these things in your LDS, you'll have a week to interact with our podcast before you go into the uh, lesson in your own week of study within the ward and on your own time. So we're getting closer to being caught up there, and uh, hopefully we'll have a couple of episodes that I actually post this week that will get us there. And then the plan going forward will be to post every Monday, just one episode a week, and then to occasionally put out some bonus episodes, as we've mentioned, and we continue to mention the myriad of potential bonus episodes to the ideas of bonus episodes. There is no end. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're hoping to be able to interview some people for some of those bonus episodes and then have some maybe just going deeper episodes talking about some different doctrinal distinctions. You know, I, I heard some feedback from some that wished that there was more on the virgin birth. And of course, as we alluded to, there was plenty more that could have been said. So, uh, you know, may do some bonus episodes where sure. we satisfy some cravings of the few, <laughs> the few out there who desire them. So, yeah, there were some that said there was too much, too. Yeah, which, some were like, whoa. <laughs> too much, too little. Really intense. Can't be all things to all people at all times. I know, but, I know. But, yeah, I look forward to those. And I was thinking of even doing some deep dives on some niche topics that might not seem on the surface interesting, like the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Second mm. Temple text, Jew, Second Temple Jewish text that mm-hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. And often LDS will claim supports some of their temple stuff. Yeah. We'll dive in and see if that's true. Boom. That's exciting. Yeah. All right. Love it. <laughs> okay, so this week's lesson was on John 1, and there's really not much to cover in the manual itself this week. Um, it, it's pretty meager on the whole in terms of the content that's in the actual manual. Again, that's part of the point is, uh, you know, we, we're using these manuals as a bit of a springboard, but part of what we want to show is that there's there's – you can go much deeper than what you have in this manual. And my fear is that a lot of LDS people, there, I think there are some out there that do seek to go deeper. But uh, my fear is that if this is all that you're interacting with, you know, and, and you're always only being encouraged to read the New Testament and respond with your initial impressions, and you're never being encouraged to really study and go deeper and be equipped with the resources to go deeper... Uh, you just may never do it. And so, uh, you know, part of what we're doing in this podcast is, you know, we we can't go as deep as we'd like to go on an entire chapter in the Bible because especially when you're in like John 1, like this week, there is so much density to these uh, these verses that, you know, we could spend weeks upon weeks diving through each verse and just dissecting the meaning as we believe John intended to convey. Um, and we just don't have time 
time for that, unfortunately. Unfortunately. You know, and you don't have time for that. <laughs> uh, so we're basically just doing the best we can to draw out a couple of ideas and uh, some important distinctions that we would make from the text that we don't see being made or that we would disagree with being made in the manual that manual itself. So um, that's what we're doing. I will, I will say too, one thing that is a struggle and uh, this is just a thought for maybe um, some of the, if we have LDS listeners out there is it's really hard to study the Bible uh, with the format that's being given here in the come follow me curriculum. And here's what I mean by that. I feel like there's so much jumping from place to place that it's difficult to do the kind of exegesis that, of course, we argued in the first episode is faithful exegesis. And by exegesis, I just mean drawing out the meaning. And what I mean by that is we're in John 1 this week, and then next week it's Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3. And I just find even in trying to prepare for these podcasts, I'm like, I have to try to cover three different chapters with three different authors who are all intending to get, convey three different messages. And even within each one of those chapters, there's various sections and lots of length. And there's just a lot to cover that I think makes it difficult, perhaps, yeah. for uh, the kind of exegesis that we would encourage. You know, it, it'd be better um, versus, you know, using this format. It'd be better to just say, I'm going to study the book of John for like four months yeah, and just dive into that one book and let my mind soak in it and saturate the, and, and try to discover the meaning, you know, just a suggestion perhaps. Yeah. It's like if there were a million samples, you'd forget what each tasted like, like it would be meaningless. Right. Yeah. Like I, I was going to bring up wine tasting. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome by the way. But I, you know, if there's too many types and kinds you, they kind of blur together in your memory. Mm-hmm. Like, and so you don't, you almost don't remember anything. Yeah. I was going to bring up Sam's club. Sam's club. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh-huh. That's probably a little better example. <laughs> you know, it's it, like you go to Sam's club and they're trying to get you to buy their stuff and they give you 50 different samples. And by the end of it, you, yeah, I don't know. You can't remember. You either bought 50 things or you don't remember any of it. Right. It would be better if you just could sit there with, one thing yeah. and try it for... <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Okay, well, uh, let me just overview the lesson very quickly, and then I'm going to go ahead and just kick it over to you after I do the overview, Skylar, to point out a couple things that you'd like to point out, one or two maybe, just things that stood out to you, things you'd like to go deeper on, and then I can come back and, and cover some things that I thought through as I worked through the curriculum. But just very quickly, you've got the same format. As in all the other lessons, there's the invite sharing encouragement at the beginning, and then it gets into the teaching of the doctrine, and we have John 1, 1 to 5 covered, and the subtitle of that le- or that portion is Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. And if you look at what's being taught and encouraged in that section, it is referring, it's using that passage to refer to an LDS understanding of the pre-moral existence. So it recommends other resources like the Living Christ, the Testimony of the Apostles, other resources like uh, go to look at our home in the churchofjesuschrist.org, go to look at, you know, in the, in the, um, individual and family manual, Jesus Christ chosen as Savior, and all of these are additional resources found on the Church of Jesus Christ 
uh, of Latter-day Saints website that teaches explicitly their doctrine, right? Which we covered some of that even in talking about the virgin birth. Perhaps we'll come back and talk about more of that some today with this in the beginning. What do you mean by that, right? That's huge what you mean by in the beginning. And we will see that there's some very critical distinctions between an LDS understanding and a credo-Christian one. Uh, John 1, 1 to 14 is the next uh, section that's studied, and that is Jesus Christ is the light. And there's just some general encouragement to read the passage and think about how Jesus Christ is spiritual life in your spiritual light in your life, right? How is how is Jesus bring light to you? And then there's some encouragement to just visualize this, what Jesus is teaching uh, through different pictures of light. And so we have a nice picture of the ocean and uh, it's like the Oregon coast with a nice, you know, rocky outcropping, and the sun is setting right behind it, and there's light shooting through. So, how does that make you feel? Uh, John 1 35 to 51 is the next section, and the subtitle there is We Can Gain Our Own Witness of the Savior and Then Invite Others to Come See. So, that's talking about Jesus calling some of the disciples, Andrew and Nathaniel and telling them, come and see essentially who I am. And then under the additional resources, um, of course, I, I, I give my own interpretation of Jesus saying, come and see who I am. But really yes. in the curriculum, it's more come and see how I'm teaching you how you should live. Yep. Right? There's a very different distinction even there. <laughs> yes. Um, and then under the additional resources, it's we can invite others to come and see. And there's a Neil Anderson quote there. The Savior taught us how to share the gospel. I like the story of Andrew who asked, Master, where dwellest thou? John one thirty eight. Jesus could have responded with the location of where he lived, but instead he said, Andrew, come and see. I like to think that the Savior was saying, come and see not only where I live, but how I live. So there you go. There's that distinction, right? Yep. Come and see who I am. Come and feel the Spirit. We don't know everything about that day, but we do know that when Andrew found his brother Simon, he declared, we have found the Christ. Of course, I should be clear. I'm not saying Jesus didn't teach us how to live. He did teach us how to live, uh, but only we only can come to live that way truly from the heart, right? This is Jesus's constant teaching. It's not about the things that you're doing. It's about your heart and how you're doing them, and we need new hearts that actually desire to do what is right. And that can only occur by faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus in our place. And so there needs to be a new birth, as John even talks about in John 3 and, and John 1. Um, yeah, and Christian theology always starts with Christ as the object of faith. Yeah. Before talking about any sort of example of teachings, you have to get who he is right or none of that. That's right. Matters, it's ultimately. the it's the you know the illustration that we commonly use is root and fruit. You know yeah. the root of your life is the proclamation of the gospel. The 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 act the well I say the proclamation. It's hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. But the gospel is a message of what Christ has done for us. Uh, and so as we trust that, uh, we are we are saved. Um, we're justified. We're changed. And as we cling to the truth of that gospel in faith, that produces fruit in our lives. Um, so by the Spirit. Root and fruit, by the Spirit, that's right. 
So that's pretty much it. Um, as far as the curriculum goes, the individual and family manual is pretty much the same sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah. Skylar, what were some things here that uh, stood out to you that you think would be important to call out as uh, some distinctions? And before you get there, yes, I just want to read, because we are identifying ourselves as creedal Christians. Yeah. I just want to read a little bit from the Nicene Creed. Please. And then jump in and say what you got to say. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, for who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. John 1 teaches that. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you got for us? All right. So just to cover some stuff in the manual really quickly, um, there's really only two substantive points that I saw in this week's lesson, and then we'll get to the real stuff that I think um, is emphasized a little more in the seminary manual for teachers. Um, and, of course, you saw some extra stuff in the family home evening. Was it for families and individuals and families? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we'll jump to some other stuff, but just to cover this. Um, we covered this last time, actually. So uh, the difference in, in Mormon theology between the Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit is actually what they're calling the light of Christ in this manual. So a lot of evangelicals looking at it might, probably wouldn't get this. Um, just to throw a sort citation out there, because I don't want to spend much time on this. There's too many other things to cover today. Um, it's called The Light of Christ by Boyd K. Packer. And he was one of the LDS apostles. In fact, he was president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And um, just to, to show this here, he... You know, he says the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit and a member of the Godhead. And then he says, but many do not know there is another spirit, the light of Christ. Okay, And he talks about it, that they are two dis different and distinct entities. And um, so even the Holy Ghost can use the light of Christ or the Holy Spirit to influence anybody. And then they think with their unique authority and unique authority to baptize, which we're going to get into next time. Baptism seems to be the theme for them next time. Yeah. Um, people have the gift of the Holy Ghost that allows them more direct access to this. So that's covered there. So that might be confusing, um, but if you read this Packer talk, I think some of what I'm saying will make a little more sense. They say explicitly, Holy Ghost is in only one place at one time, Yeah. as are the other two members of the Godhead, mm -hmm. uh, by the way. Yeah. Um, Okay, and then the, the other one is the premortal existence that they emphasize. Mm -hmm. um, this is an easy one to get wrong because the, they'll, you'll hear them say that Jesus was pre, you know, had a premortal existence. That sounds orthodox as far as it goes. But you got to realize that for LDS, and I think any of them listening will know that I'm telling the truth, 
Jesus was premortal, and so were you. Everybody was. Yeah. And if you go even further, in what yes. in what sense? In the sense that we were all matter, um, and had not yet been collected. Because my my understanding is that we came into existence as spirit children. Yeah. Um, from heavenly father and heavenly mother or mothers, of course, as you referred to, depending on what era Mormon era? history you're yeah. clinging to. But that's my understanding is that 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 was when we came into being. Uh, but I guess there would be a distinction between when we were spirit children, even, and when we became material. So yeah. were we born from a material uh, heavenly father who is body of flesh and bones and a material mother, but then we were not material yet? Or, yeah. I mean, how's that work? Well, I, I definitely can't give the Mormon view because there isn't only one. Yeah, Let me try to represent... Um, the deeper Mormon conception, to, to borrow a term for Protestant Roman Catholic, Christian debates. Uh-huh. What is the deeper Mormon conception? Yeah. And some of this is drawing on DNC 93, which, by the way, echoes a lot of this John language. And even in the Thomas Wayman translation, uh, it's alluded to tons in the footnotes. Um, this, is, this is how you got to think of it is we were first intelligences. Uh, what that is is hard to describe okay. because Joseph Smith wasn't always clear on this language. But if you look later, you see this development of the distinction between intelligence and spirit and spirit and body. Yeah. By the way, there's someone else that came up with this. His name was Kenneth Copeland. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's um, <laughs> some of this has impacted uh, <clears throat> Christianity in other yeah. ways here in America. But mm-hmm. the idea is that the intelligence is eternal. In other words, this is where you see that there, in a sense, was never a creation. Mm. There was no beginning because it's eternal. Um, and the ontological, the, the whatness of the intelligence between Heavenly Father, for example, and you and me is the same. He's just more progressed in knowledge and power and mm. righteousness. According to laws that are self-existent. So, that, so, so that's where you could get into some ideas similar to reincarnation in this progressive <laughs> process. And that's out there. To get to the level that needs to be attained. For sure. Um, Multiple lives. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah they anyways, it, I know yeah, that's no, probably way out we, there. We but could do yeah. a bonus episode sometime on that. I, yeah. I, I, I should be quick to say for the LDS out there before they get defensive. Right. Uh, there's a lot of leaders in the 20th century that put absolutely a stop to that okay um but that being said i do think a more consistent view involves multiple lives um for that reason that there's not really a beginning or an end so whereas hiram smith can say something like man can ascend or descend like the moon waxes and wanes from the middle kingdom right because there's three kingdoms of glory to the lower to the higher Mm uh mcconkey will say once you're to a kingdom you can progress within that kingdom that you're set based on one life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think, um, in a sense, McConkie's less consistent if you get the deeper conception yeah. of what Mormonism is. And that is, God was never created, but neither were you. Mm-hmm. We all start as intelligence. By the way, the Interpreter podcast on this lesson actually translate. they said as a Mormon believer, LDS believer, that they would translate this in the beginning was intelligence. Interesting. So this yeah. is still there. And then the intelligence graduates to some level mm. um, to become, to acquire a spirit body. Um, 
definitely. I mean, very then, Gnostic, right? I think so. Yeah. And and here's the thing uh, with spirit. There's also something that often is not said. It's a good point to bring it up. I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet. Um, by spirit, LDS theology does not totally distinguish it from matter. Uh, spirit is seen as a more fine form of matter. Mm-hmm. So it's even though they, they use the word spirit and matter and distinguish the two, in a sense, at the base level, they're not essentially distinct the way we do. So when we see that Jesus saying to the woman at the well that God is spirit, spirit is God. Mm -hmm. And we say, this is speaking of who God is in himself. Um, Gordon B. Hinckley can see that same verse and say, yeah, so are we. See, yeah. because of that, that materialism is kind of built into that worldview. And by the way, for the post-Mormons out there, when you leave and become atheist and materialistic, you're actually being consistent with Mormonism. Yeah. You just go from having a family on a planet near Kolob before to not after. It's, yeah. it's really not the, the, diff, the same as uh, having any form of classical theism, um, let alone the one we do, are trying to represent as faithfully as we yeah. can, which is the triune God who exists. So you, you get to the point where you receive a spirit body, and you're right, it, I, don't, I don't know how they would um, understand how that process right. occurs. Is that a spiritual is it, is it, existence or a material existence? Right. They're way more clear that the physical body comes through procreation. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of language is still used to the spirit body. Yeah. But... I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting. But so, well, because the, yeah. I, I mean, it has to be based on what we even talked about with the virgin birth, I would think, because yeah. there's so much, you know, teaching by former LDS prophets, apostles, uh, and even current that there's only, there's only one way to have a baby. Yes. Right. And right. That, that's why the virgin birth had to occur mm-hmm. through the natural physical process of Heavenly Father and Mary. Totally. Um, that's why yeah. Brigham Young can look at Genesis. So you'd and, have to be consistent in saying yeah. if we are the children of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, that's the only way that we could have been born, right? Right. I yeah. mean, and, and this is the kind of the framework that we cover with the virgin birth of why I think Genesis becomes such an issue because um, it shows God making man out. Right? He, he isn't male or female. He creates man and makes them male, female, and makes them of, you know, there's, mad, there's a material component in the clay and a spiritual component in this kind of breath of life. Mm-hmm. Um, either Brigham Young can say, I put that away as quickly as the fairy tales my mom told me, or you can have a more um, metaphorical kind of, kind of view, but, but clearly that's not technically the Mormon view any way you slice it. And, and, and the similarly, if you push that back to Genesis one, one, they don't believe there really was a beginning. They might yeah. say there's a beginning for this world, there was a beginning to this form of time around this sun. Mm-hmm. Really, eternity is just a length of time. There really is no time yeah. in the sense of um, a beginning to all of history and an end to all of history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know maybe I overdid the point. They would say the time is real while we're here, but it's not like there's a beginning point, and which is why I think even the most... Um, uh, I guess, more scholarly Mormons, that's why they will take aim at creation ex nihilo, yeah. that God created everything, not to only out of nothing, but into nothing, yeah. as Van Tilman Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, referen- the reference to in the beginning within the curriculum is, hey, go and look at the pre-mortal existence that 
that uh, Jesus had with the Father. But then the references that they give take us to recall the pre-mortal existence that we all had with yes. the Father. So that's what, in their minds, in the beginning is referring to. That's what they're teaching their people to believe in the beginning is referring to. I've got a little bit here of one of the bits that it you know, highlights and tells you, go look at this resource on the Church of Jesus Christ website. But this is an article by uh, Elder David B. Height, and it's called Jesus Christ Chosen as Savior. And this is what it says. When the plan for our salvation was presented to us in the pre-mortal spirit world, we were so happy that we shouted for joy. So you, you see it's talking about our all of us, our pre-mortal existence in this pre-mortal spirit world. And while we're all there, we're apparently hearing about the plan for our salvation that's going to occur. And we all became so happy that we shouted for joy. They refer to Job 38.7 on that, which we're not going to look at that verse. But yeah, uh, it, it was, we're going to keep <laughs> going there. We understood that we would have to leave our heavenly home for a time. While we were away, all of us would sin, and some of us would lose our way. Our Heavenly Father knew we would need help, right? Oh, we're going to lose our way. We need help. He knew we would need help. So he planned a way to help us. I heard a, a uh, sermon, I think it was by Talmadge, if I remember right, not too long ago, and he used this long illustration of how we are basically these rock climbers, and we climb this mountain, and we get to the very uh, top almost, but we slip and we're about to fall and we need help. And that was kind of the idea that he was giving of what the plan of salvation is like. We do the work to get pretty much all the way, but then we're dangling and about to die. And that's when we stretch out our hand and the hand of Jesus is there to save us at the very end. We needed a Savior to pay for our sins and to teach us how to return to our Heavenly Father. Our Father said, Whom shall I send? And there's a reference to Abraham 3.27. Jesus Christ, who was called Jehovah, said, Here I am, send me. Abraham 3.27, and also see Moses 4, 1-4. Jesus was willing to come to earth, give his life for us, and take upon himself our sins. He, like our Heavenly Father, wanted us to choose. He wanted us to choose whether we would obey Heavenly Father's commandments. He knew we must be free to choose in order to prove ourselves worthy of exaltation, right? So there's a, a worthiness that we're trying to attain to, and part of that that is so important within Mormon theology is the ability to choose this free agency. Jesus said, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever, right? So Jesus is kind of being set up as his perfect example. And then Satan was there as well. And he was called Lucifer, and he came saying, Behold, here I am, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind. Because you have to remember that that uh, within LDS theology, Satan is also a child of God, uh, just like Jesus is, and just like all of us are. Um, and I will redeem all mankind, that not one soul shall be lost, and surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. So you see, Satan wants honor for himself. Under Satan's plan, now listen to this, we would not be allowed to choose. He would take away the freedom of our choice that our Heavenly Father had given us. Satan wanted to have all the honor for our salvation. Under his proposal, our purpose in coming to earth would have been frustrated. After hearing both sons speak, Heavenly Father said, I will send the first. And then it says, Skylar, record your impressions. What do you think <laughs> about that? 
Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not even totally sure where it'll land. I think it kind of spoke for itself. Um, I, I just think clearly Smith has huge issues with Reformed theology. I mean, Christianity in general, all the creeds are an abomination. He claims Jesus told him, uh, to be clear. And then later on, you know, he tells his mom, I know for myself from this experience that Presbyterianism is not true. Now, on this kind of stuff, it's obviously not just Presbyterianism, but it is kind of funny that I feel like the satanic parallel is <laughs> Presbyterianism. Yep. You watch uh, out for those Presbyterians. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or us well, Reformed Baptists, too. We, right. On, yes, yes. We the bad stuff. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, I know. I, I mean, you know, we, we, we say that in jest, but, but uh, it, it really is. I mean, their, their theology is, is heavily, heavily... Um, oh man, I'm trying to use not Baptisty words here. Um, it is so captivated by this idea of our free will and our ability to choose and our power to do and all these different things. Um, again, as we would say, contrary to what the scripture clearly teaches again and yep. again and again, that your heart is desperately wicked yeah. and that because of the sin of Adam that you were born into, and take on, you choose wickedness all the time, and to assume that you can attain the kind of righteousness that's required by God's standards apart from Christ alone is absolutely arrogant, yeah. um, dangerous, and and hopeless. Yeah. Ah, uh, you know, it's sad. Yeah, and I mean, we're not. In oh, go ahead. We're coming from a credo Christian perspective. So, if you're right. LDS, listen to us. You know, just hear us out. Yeah, I mean, because they're going to take aim. We're going to see Holland take aim at our God as well. So we'll, we're we're going to include the pot shots the other way. This is, I don't think that was a pot shot, to be clear. But yeah, it's just we're, we're trying to express this because, once again, in the culture, it's like we're all the same, right? We love Jesus. You love Jesus. Yeah. There's even, a, you know, a director that's pretty influential now that's saying stuff like that in interviews. So we need yeah. to be clear as to the distinctions. And... Um, I think the injured and error thing is very much, uh, you know, it's not dead in sin. It's yeah. injured in error. That's right. And I, I want to say this as well, that even the more free will emphasizing Christians that are out there, the will is cr- still created. It's not a right. Like, you got to keep in mind in Mormonism, your agency, like God can't violate it or he'll literally stop being God. Mm. And so it's like a constitutional <sighs> right that you have against any God that you you have the right to choose. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, so it, it, it's not a created me, yeah. gift like it would be with even free will it, yeah. emphasizing Roman Catholics. It, it makes me actually think of uh, some of Anselm's ontological argument that the, the 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 God that must be, you know, the highest being is the one who is higher than anything else that can be conceived, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it's fascinating to think of God ceasing to be God when he violates our agency, Mm-hmm. That that puts us in the position of the highest being in in that sense, or With, or at yeah. least the obscure notion of of agency. Agency is the God, then, mm-hmm. uh, not not who Heavenly Father is. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Okay. Um, anything else you want to say about the premortal existence before we kind of switch to cover that from an not, not this week. I'm sure it'll come up again. Okay, so yeah, we'll definitely probably come across it again. I want to switch to kind of covering what we see in the text when we read this from a credo Christian perspective, particularly 
on that very point of this pre-mortal existence. And so let's zone in on John 1.1. In the beginning, it says, this is John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay. Creedal Christian perspective, creation, which is what we would say that John is clearly referring to in the beginning, right? Th- those words are meant to hearken back to Genesis 1.1. Um, it is near impossible to imagine that John, the good Jew, would have anything else in mind when he's announcing the arrival of Jesus Christ than this concept of the uh, Genesis account when he says in the beginning. So that's where our minds should go when he says in the beginning is what's going on in, in Genesis. And of course, we would say that any good Jew would have had a right understanding that God um, is not creating out of existing matter or he's not you know, just a participant in some other bigger divine thing that's going on in the world where there's more matter and God is given a corner of the universe where he's allowed to kind of shape and fashion it however he wants. That actually would be a little more of exactly what the Jews were writing against, right? Because that's the kind of religion that you saw. That was the Chalcedonian sort of religion. Um, that was their concept of the gods. This is yeah, Babylonian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Babylonian, yeah. Chalcedonian. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, we would see that the Jews were going exactly against that. And in fact, I've got a note here from a passage that really shows this in Second Maccabees seven twenty eight, which would have been, of course, written during Second Temple Judaism, which is what John would have been raised in. So this would have been John's concept of what's going on when it comes to this creation account. And Second Maccabees seven twenty eight says, "I beseech you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them, and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed." And it says, thus also mankind comes into being. In other words, things didn't exist. Yes. This is the teaching, not only of Judaism going back millennia, but this has been the teaching of credo Christianity ever since the very beginning, that God is the supreme being, the only being that existed prior to anything that was created. Before creation, nothing existed except God. Including time. And, and to draw in the manual, that's where the Job reference matters, because what they're saying is that when the creation of the world occurred, we were there. Yeah. Whereas this is saying in the beginning, I mean, think Genesis, just think the order. We weren't there. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's the whole point. That's the point. The, the whole point is, is when nothing was, yeah. this Lagos was there. Yeah. He was there in the beginning before anything was created. Including time. Time's one of the creatures. That's right. Genesis 1. So just a little quote on this from uh, from one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bovink. Creation is properly said to be ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's a Latin phrase. Thus preserving the distinction in essence between the creator and the world and the contingency, the contingency of the world in its dependence on God. 
The triune God is the author of creation rather than any intermediary. The outgoing works of God are indivisible, though it is appropriate to distinguish an economy of tasks in the Godhead so that the Father is spoken of as the first cause, the Son as the one by whom all things are created. That's what we see happening in John 1, 1 to 3. And the Holy Spirit as the eminent cause of life and movement in the universe. The Holy Spirit breathes life into the universe. Scripture does relate the creation in a special way to the Son through the categories of wisdom and logos. The Son is the Logos, by whom the Father creates all things. The whole world is the realization of an idea of God. Okay, let's go back to Anselm's argument. The highest being you can possibly conceive. How about the being who existed before anything was and spoke? And there it existed. That's power. And that's the kind of power that was considered outrageous to the pagans in the Jews' day and is still considered outrageous to the world in our day to, to say that there is this kind of God with this kind of power, but this is the God of the Bible. This is the God that John believed in and taught. Uh, uh, Bavink continues in just a couple more lines. The creation proceeds from the Father through the Son and in the Spirit, so that in the Spirit and through the Son it may return to the Father, giving him glory. Creation also means that time has a beginning. There you go. Only God is eternal. Yes. Yeah, and it, God is the only being who is pure act, the only being that exists by virtue of himself. Everything else, everything else, even existence is an act of dependence. That's right. So very different worldview. And I, I, I should say this too. Um, if you look at Romans 4, Colossians 1, if you look how Paul talks about creation, you know, um, it also has this baked right in. Yeah. And, you know, people will say, well, the creation story is just like all these other creation stories. Uh, the quickest way to cure that is to actually read them. And I will say, though, they typically start in council scenes. They assume matter's already there. And really, they're, so they're not really creation, right? When we say creation, we have a distinct meaning, right? Yeah. God's where there was nothing, there now there is something. Yeah. If and anything, the Jewish creation story is a polemic against, against those, those other stories. It's not right. borrowing from them whatsoever. It's right. actually taking the exact opposite position right. that all of them would have taken. And oftentimes the authors will use language, I think, as a polemic that would be familiar in the world that they're writing to, Definitely. to make their points. But you've got to see what they're trying to say you can't start to just make these cheap comparisons that say, well, they're borrowing this from yeah. whatever religion that was out there in the day or whatever, in John's case, whatever philosophy that was out there in the day. A lot of people will try to twist what John means when he says logos, you know, because logos, that word, which of course, if you're not familiar, in the beginning was the word, the word is logos in Greek. That That's one of the most complex words in the Greek language. You know, scholars have pointed out they're going to have nearly 40 meanings attributed to it. And so people will chop that thing up and try to make it mean and say whatever they want it to mean and say. But the question is, what did John mean yes. when he was using that word? And surely he doesn't mean, well, I'm trying to rightly represent this middle Platonic position <laughs> on this. No, no, no. He's writing against those things, yeah. barring their language to show them, try to try to show them this is who we are saying Jesus is. Right. Um, he is this incredible God, like he is, he was there before anything 
was there. Absolutely. And to, to go along with that point and connect them, you know, they'd say, well, these other creation myths, but really that's a misnomer. These aren't, if you just read them, they're not the same. It Really, it's how one God became more powerful than others, speaking generally, of course, uh, how one God became primary or a set of gods became primary over others or replaced older ones, mm-hmm. and then how they organized matter into its current configuration myths. Yeah. That's what they mean. If you actually read it and study it clearly, um, if we don't mean the same thing by crea- creation mm-hmm. that a Babylonian would. And similarly, John doesn't mean the same thing by logos that Heraclitus would. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's not an ancillary issue he's trying to correct, yeah. um, but it's it's not primary in the mind of a devout monotheistic Jew. Yeah. So, so this is why... Um, we are talking about these things because in the manual itself, when the LDS church is seeking to teach this text, of course, we're digging into historical grammatical research, seeking to understand what they say in the manual is go and read the Joseph Smith translation. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so of course we talked about this, we brought it up for the first time some last week that Joseph Smith wrote the Joseph Smith translation to restore precious uh, plain and precious truths that were lost in translation over the years somehow. So this is what apparently this text was supposed to be translated as in the Joseph Smith translation. And then I want to just see if you have anything to respond to on this. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son. Again, this is John one one in the Joseph Smith translation. Of course, compare that to what I just read out of the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the text that's seeking to rightly represent the Greek. And then uh, Joseph Smith, 1-1, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. In him was the gospel, and the gospel was the life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the world, and the world perceiveth it not. What do you have to say just kind of on what we're seeing in the JST there, Skylar? Well, of course, there's no manuscript evidence for that reading, Yeah. right? Um, I mean, Joseph Smith clearly had a sense of authority over the text, rather than submitting to the text, right? Mm-hmm. When when it talks about the like, experiment with my word or experiment with the text, like DNC nine, which we looked at in you know a, f- a few weeks ago, um, I think Joseph Smith. It's literal. He's taking words and adjusting them, and even uh, you'll find people out there that will say, "Well, he got it right here." But I think more recent scholarship will show that a he knew what chiasm was thanks to D. Michael Quinn. And then there's been a lot more um, research into showing that he probably had Adam Clark's Bible commentary um, as well. So these weren't just guesses. Yeah. But, I mean, clearly what he saw, that he needed to adjust. It's funny, he he is kind of taking on the, um, he's appropriating the prestige of the Bible. He's He's taking this respected text and he's saying, but I've got the truth revealed, so I'm going to make the text fit the truth rather than going to the Bible to find the truth, <laughs> right? He's make, he's saying, I've got the truth, I'm going to make the Bible Which that's, that's kind of, the, I mean, that's their understanding of Revelation, right? I, I think it, very much, yeah. and that's that's a consistency from Smith, yeah. I think, is that that's how they're reading it, that's how he treated it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, what we look at are manuscripts, Greek language, 
Um, yeah, because the meaning is in the text. It's right. not we've discovered it outside Grammar. of the text, <laughs> yeah. and we're trying to fix what's there. Right. These aren't any secret languages. There's not any magical means. There's not some genie we're trying to tap into. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say, of course, that uh, there aren't problems in the text as we have it today. You know, yeah, there's, there a, there's a huge field of textual criticism mm-hmm. where people try to rightly discover what the original text could have or should have been. And there's different places in the Bible where it can be difficult. One of those areas is actually in John 1, uh, John, what is it, 14, I think, here. Um, How to translate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, of grace and truth. No, I'm sorry, it's 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. And there's a debate over whether or not that should say the only God or the, the only, only begotten son, son of God. Right. Um, and, you know, some of these things are in flux, and there's room for some argument. Um, none of these things are going to drastically change, I don't think, our reading of the text in one direction or another. Some of them can have some serious implications, but that's right. neither here or there for this particular conversation. I, I do think, um, even there, right, it's in the footnote, the options. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're not hiding it. In it's the not... ESV study Bible footnote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and either way, it's within what we would consider orthodoxy, yeah. even creedal orthodoxy. Um, but, yeah, I just think, you know, with Smith, he's just kind of changing. And that's why it's not a translation. He doesn't know these languages. He's not yeah. He's not analyzing manuscripts. It's, it's a really, it should be the Joseph Smith version. I think the word translation is such a... Um, it has a meaning. Let's let it mean what it means. And clearly he, if you go by the Joseph Smith quote-unquote translation, it can't mean what it says in John mm-hmm. and what the manuscript evidence of John shows John wrote, or according to Greek grammar, what John wrote. So that should be pointed out that the reason he's separating gospel from the son, you know, what, what is he reacting to? Why emphasize the Joseph Smith translation if the Bible originally taught Mormonism? Yeah. Uh, that needs to be said. And it, 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 does, it doesn't, it didn't. And in fact, even where we do have some of the more uh, debated passages, they typically are things ad- added to the Bible, yeah. not things taken out. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, um, I'm not sure who I'm stealing this from, but it's like you have 110 pieces to a 100-piece puzzle. Mm-hmm. Bart Ehrman will give the impression that we have, you know, well, tech, depending on whether you're reading his academic work in the footnotes yeah. or, you know, listening to him on NPR yeah, we have one or Stephen Colbert. Yeah, it depends on which, <laughs> which yeah. Bart Ehrman. But the point being, we'll read his PhD dissertation advisor. Yeah. We, we have too many things, not too little, and yeah. none of those things affect essential doctrines in any way. I want to step back just to the idea of this pre-mortal existence. And again, we're doing this because John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is John trying to communicate in that? Of course, we believe that he is taking us back to Genesis 1-1, and he is revealing to us that Jesus is God. This is a glorious Trinitarian passage, and I want you to make some comments on the Trinity here in a minute. But before we get there, I just want to read as another defense for you of the doctrine of of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, that uh, has been historically held to. 
Um, this is something that the the great early church father Irenaeus held to. And yes. why is that important, particularly in this context? Well, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. So there could be an assumption uh, that Irenaeus had this lineage of thought passed down to him on how this ought to be rightly understood. Um, how did John understand uh, the uh, the origins of this world? Well, let's just glean a little bit from how Irenaeus would uh, portray these things. And again, Irenaeus is writing to combat all these different heresies. This is from his book Against Heresies. He's writing against all these different heresies that are taking on this Gnostic form that would say that matter pre-existed in the universe and these different powers brought the matter together and 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 you know there's this highest being that gained the most power and he emanates his power down into the world and that's how we get created you know as spirits and you know it's just it's it's a mess but this is what he's responding to because these sort of heresies started to take on a christian flavor in various ways and so some people have you know made the argument that john is trying to even take on some of these gnostic ideas by using the word logos not true at all. He's not accepting that particular common Greek understanding of the word logos. He's trying to simply portray that Jesus is this divine power who who preexisted the creation of this world and through whom the work of the Trinity accomplished the creation. Uh, but let me just read a little bit of Irenaeus to prove my point. This manner of speech, this is from Irenaeus Against Heresies, Book 2, Chapter 2, Article 4, and I might read Article 5 too, depending on if I feel like I'm getting bored, which I shouldn't get bored. No. Uh, more, I guess more so I should say if I feel like the listener might be getting bored because I, <laughs> I, I could read this stuff all day. They should be getting excited at the name Irenaeus. <laughs> Here comes Seriously. Irenaeus. Again, Bishop Irenaeus. Bishop yeah, Yes, and lived from about 120 A.D. to 200, I believe, were his yeah. dates. So mm-hmm. we're talking very Eight. early, uh, just just very closely removed from the Apostle John himself. Very faithful. This manner of speech may perhaps be plausible or persuasive to those who know not God and who liken him to the needy human beings. He's talking about their view of creation. They're trying to make God be like the needy human beings. That's the problem with the pagans. And to those who cannot immediately and without assistance form anything but require many instrumentalities to produce what they intend. But it will not be regarded as at all probable by those who know God, who who know that God stands in need of nothing, and that he created and made all things by his word, while he neither required angels to assist him in the production of those things which are made, nor of any power greatly inferior to himself and ignorant of the Father, nor of any defect or ignorance in order that he should know him, uh, in order that, sorry, I'm trying to read this off real small print, in order that he who should know him might become man. Okay? Okay. But he himself, in himself, after a fashion which can neither describe nor conceive, predestinating all things, formed them as he pleased, bestowing harmony on all things and assigning them their own place in the beginning of their creation. And this way, in this way, he conferred on spiritual things a spiritual and invisible nature, 
on super celestial things as celestial, on angels and angelical, on animals and animal, on beings that swim and nature suited to the water, and on those that live on the land, one fitted for the land, on all, in short, a nature suitable to the character of the life assigned to them, while he formed all things that were made by his word that never wearies. Here's what this is saying. The entire work of creation that you see, everything that exists, both spiritual and not spiritual, physical, unphysical, everything exists by the creation of God. His word, his power is is what created this. For this, he goes on to say, is a peculiarity of the preeminence of God, not to stand in need of other instruments for creation of those things which are summoned into existence. His word is both suitable and sufficient for the formation of all things, even as John, the disciple of the Lord, declares regarding him, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. There's him quoting his old grandfather, uh, discipler. Now among the all things, our world must be embraced. It too, therefore, was made by his word. As scripture tells us in the book of Genesis, that he made all things connected with our world by his word. David also expresses the same truth when he says, For he spake, and they were made, he commanded, and they were created. Whom, therefore, shall we believe as to the creation of the world? These heretics who have been mentioned that prate so foolishly and inconsistently on the subject or the disciples of the Lord and Moses, who is both a faithful servant of God and a prophet. He at first narrated the formation of the world in these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all other things in succession, but neither gods nor angels had any share in the work. The heresy is particularly writing against us, this heresy that the angels are the ones who actually fashioned and, and helped well, participate the earth. And, and that's relevant. Um, it is a very, earth, yeah. it is a folk kind of LDS belief. Mm-hmm. I say folk belief that, you know, many LDS uh, will say they think they participated in the creation. Yeah. Now, once again, by creation, they mean organize. There is no, matter is eternal. And, so by creating the heavens and the earth, they mean organized this earth. Yep. Or some will say this solar system because there's other passages where Smith or the book of Moses, which has nothing to do with Moses, um, created multiple worlds or whatever. So um, so they mean organized some things. And so, you know, they would say Michael participated with Jesus in creating. They would say we were there, all these things. It reminds you of like... Some of the mythology Genesis one is pushing against, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that is actually even yeah pretty pretty relevant. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it just shows that the doctrine of of uh, creation out of nothing is not something that was invented at Nicaea, you no. know, or or some other date. This is something that's historically been held to, and it is a massive deviation to step away from it, which is why it was so avidly spoken against from the earliest days of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, God created out of nothing. Before him, nothing existed. Um, he is he is the uh, the preexistent you know yeah. being that is more powerful th- than anything which the human mind can conceive. Yeah, and that is th- his name. Uh, you know, in Exodus three, we don't have time to go there, right? I am existing. Uh, I'm the existing one. Um, when we say Yahweh, that's the third person singular. You exist. Meaning when we say the name of God, we're confessing that our creation is dependent. And and not just in the beginning, though that is true. Mm-hmm. At every moment of time as well, it's upheld. 
So there's a temporally ordered series from the beginning of time. There's also a hierarchically ordered series reaching down or up uh, in every moment of time. Mm. And so he's the only one that's self-existent, yeah. not matter, us, and him, and everything. Yeah. And laws, yeah. and all that. Yeah, and, and so the question is, is, is your God the Apostle John's God? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead and help us, you know, I, I know you had some, some things you wanted to work through, specifically on how this passage helps us understand the Trinity um, Absolutely. Yeah. Help us out there. Okay. Well, first, um, man, we could do a whole podcast on the Trinity, the triune God that we worship. It is, I think, the essential doctrine. Everything else is an appendage to it. Um, I, I think one thing needs to be said, of course, the basic distinction we make as Christians between the being of God and the persons of God, right? Uh, of course, if you have this whole context of intelligence, spirit, matter, um, God once being a man uh, and then earning his way to Godhood, and you can as well. Obviously, this is going to be a very foreign kind of thinking. So being the substance of God is one, right? And that the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all share equally, co-equally, um, tri-equally, I guess, um, as the one God, right? Yeah. And we have careful terminology in the creeds um, to guard that. And it's not that it's not biblical. In fact, it is biblical. That's why we use it. Because one of the threats, of course, is to dismiss the Bible, what it what it says. The other threat is to use what it says against what it teaches as a whole. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, and so the reason these, the, the words we use are there are to guard what the scriptures teach as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it's never just proof testing this verse to justify an entirely different worldview. So, um, we believe in one God that exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's not a contradiction because we distinguish between the being and person. A lot of LDS will not even know what the doctrine of the yeah. Trinity is. So that is like very basic, yeah. as you know, kindergarten level oh, yeah. Trinity uh, talk. But I want to bring up this talk, and it is cited in the seminary manual. And frankly, uh, Holland, Jeffrey Holland, he's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles mm-hmm. or the LDS Church. He's His talk is cited, and he's way more clear in the talk than the seminary manual because they definitely land on this and say, we believe the Godhead is three distinct persons. Yeah. And I want to say, well, so do we. Right. <laughs> what they mean is three different beings and persons. So uh, Jeffrey R. Holland gave this talk, God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. And this is a good one to know uh, on both sides. So LDS will see this as an apostle speaking in general conference. And um, Christians should know this talk because this is the most recent that I know of. A clear articulation of their rejection of the Trinity. Right. And so if there's a shared Christianity, it can't be in Trinitarian terms. Um, 
which in my mind is a contradiction because Christianity is triune. Like that's mm-hmm. what it is. Okay. Um, and the subheading to the talk even says, we declare it as self-evident from the scriptures that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are separate persons, three divine beings. So this talk, I'm going to show where it clearly isn't interacting with much of what we have to say. Mm-hmm. That being said, I, I think he did do us the service of at least looking in an encyclopedia what the Trinity is. Right. Otherwise, why use the person being distinction right. uh, to make the point clear? So they have three divine beings. And by the way, I, this is uh, a question I have, which is why I, even later on in my Mormon life, I kind of rejected this uh, kind of Godhead idea because in my mind, they're all married, right? Um, we, we'll get to this. Was Jesus married in Mormonism? Right. Absolutely. That's why it's almost like they were Da Vinci Code before Da Vinci Code, you yeah. know, in that way. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, why three? It's just kind of random, right? It's because they're coming out of a culture that sees the Godhead as three. It's like a very, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make sense. If you just started with Mormon essentials, you would never arrive at a Godhead of three. Right. But if you historically came out of a Christian context that mm-hmm. shouldn't understand the Trinity, but yeah. didn't, it makes sense that yeah. you'd just be stuck on this three. You're trying idea. to fit a new worldview into one that already exists. Exactly. Versus really just creating a new worldview altogether Mm -hmm. from scratch, I guess. Yeah, and the language barrier, I think, is a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would recommend those who are interested in this read the whole talk. We don't have time to go through the whole thing. Maybe we can on a bonus episode sometime. Yeah. But I will, um, you know, he expresses, I will go through some of this. He he does express this anxiety over um, declaring that they are Christians. Mm -hmm. And he says, we believe these three divine persons constituting a single Godhead are united in purpose and manner and testimony and mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe them to be filled with the same godly sense of mercy and love, justice and grace. Notice that, not the source of it. They're filled with yeah. the godly sense. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mercy, love, justice, grace, patience, forgiveness, redemption. I think it is accurate to say we believe they are one in every significant and eternal aspect imaginable, except believing them to be three persons combined in one substance, a Trinitarian notion never set forth in the scriptures because it is not true. Mm-hmm. Clarity. I actually really appreciate this because yeah. now we're getting at the real issue. Yep. Okay. Um, now he will go, he will make arguments that we will have heard, uh, you know, who is he praying to? Who's Jesus praying to? We distinguish the persons. Yep. That's not the issue. The question is, is there one God? Mm-hmm. And if there's one God revealed as Father in and as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how do you articulate in a way that honors both the unity and the particularity? Yeah. Right? Um, Which is exactly what John's trying to do. Exactly. In it, John, chapter, John exactly. 1, one The word was with God and the word was God. Yeah, he's making a very careful distinction, even mm-hmm. in the Greek. Yep. Yes. Um, uh, just so you get some of the tone of this. So any criticism that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not hold the contemporary Christian view of God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost is not a comment about our commitment to Christ, but rather a recognition, accurate, I might add, that our view of the Godhead breaks with post-New Testament Christian history and returns to the doctrine taught by Jesus himself. Wow. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this. There's too much to be said in this episode. 
But the interpreter podcast on this as well cited um, a Jewish scholar named Daniel Boyarin as supporting the idea that when, according to them, Boyarin uh, says that these are two different divine beings. That's not true, actually. So the book here is called The Jewish Gospels. To be clear, I'm not saying every argument Boyarin makes defends Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's an interesting defense of the Jewishness of the New Testament, of specifically the Gospels, mm-hmm. including Mark and John. And um, you know, maybe I'll post some more links to some of this in the the uh, show notes. But Sch- listen, Skyler's yes. in charge of the show notes too now, so you'll <laughs> you'll see a significant some gems bump in, in the number of resources posted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I just going to read a couple passages um, in Boyarin's work. I think it's actually incredibly interesting, um, incredibly rich. Um, but see for yourself what he says if. This is more defending the idea of the Trinity or defending more the idea of three separate persons and beings. First, he, he points to the Son of Man title in Daniel 7 and says, what are these characteristics of the Son of Man? He is divine. He is in human form. He may very well be portrayed as a younger appearing divinity than the Ancient of Days. He will be enthroned on high. He is given power, dominion, even sovereignty on earth. So he says, in other words, a simile, a God who looks like a human being, literally son of man, which why would you need to point that out if gods are men? Why is this divine being riding on the clouds as Yahweh does in the Psalms mm-hmm. need to be said like a son of man? Yeah. That, way, that doesn't make sense if that's an of course. Mm-hmm. Um, has become the name for that God who is now called son of man, a reference to his human appearing divinity. What does that sound like? Uh, He actually says that this debate probably makes a lot of sense of what we see with the Canaanites. So just really quickly, if you're looking at the land of Canaan, in fact, we found a bunch of Canaanite texts at Ugarit, a place called Ugarit, and it's helped our understanding of the region, it's helped our understanding of the language. We now see that Hebrew is a dialect of Canaanite, and they were cousins. And so there are arguments going back and forth, and we see this even in the Elijah stuff that we don't have time to get into, which even here in John 1, where he's constantly calling them away from Baal worship into the worship of the one true God, right, Yahweh. Well, why is that even a debate? Well, um, according to Boyarin, um, especially in the footnotes, he actually thinks that rather than this being a new debate between Christians and Jews over how to understand the unity of God, is he complex in his unity or is he a a simple unity that cannot account for distinction in persons? Mm -hmm. Um, he actually sees that in the Old Testament, that Baal is probably separate from El in the Canaanite, right? Two gods. Mm-hmm. Whereas this angel of the Lord that's sometimes called the word of the Lord, who appears to Abraham, by the way, um, is, is the one God. Mm-hmm. And we see this, um, this is called the two powers in heaven stuff. And there's been a lot of work recently on this, especially since the seventies with the book called the two powers of heaven uh, by Alan Segal. And, uh, but th- this is, so when you hear a Bart Ehrman say, this is like a new thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah he's over a thousand years too late right. actually. Um, and so listen to this in the biblical religion in order to, this is Boyarin in the biblical religion, in order to form a more perfect monotheism, 
these two divinities have been merged into one, but not quite seamlessly. And that's a theme in this book, that it's not like we would write it in exactly that same way, but conceptually, people, you can hear that. Is that a Christian debate? Yeah. This is not saying God became was once a man yeah. that became God. Um, in fact, he calls it at one point a Jewish binatarianism and actually argues that Christianity was a conservative backlash against innovations that were oversimplifying some of these complexity passages. So, for example, like... A, uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah is, is destroyed. Um, it says Yahweh destroyed through Yahweh. Yeah. It's something like that. You, you can see it there. I can't, I'm going off the top of my head. So, but you can see there's kind of a two-ness there. And there's yeah. it's several key passages like this. Yep. And it, it is interesting. Um, recent book, uh, more recent book, um, John Ronning, 20, 2010. This book, The Jewish Targums and John's Logos Theology by John Ronning. This is an, an excellent book in showing where the idea of the word is coming from. Once yeah. again, like we already said, um, there's voices out there that want to make it all about Heraclitus or something. Once again, I'm not saying it's not relevant at all. Uh, it's just not what he's drawing on. And in fact, uh, he shows that the apologetic point of John um, in using this title of Christ is a quote, it is a way of def- identifying him with the God of Israel, yeah. the one God of Israel. Um, that it's a divine title, that in the Aramaic Targums that you see in the synagogues of this time, that the word of the Lord is literally, in many of them, a, a filler for the Lord. And it's used, no, though not completely consistently, to be clear. Mm-hmm. There is a pattern that he, that he sees that when God is interacting with this creation— they will use this title to emphasize the imminence of God so that they're not compromising the transcendence of God. Mm-hmm. They had a tough time. And by the way, think of this. Uh, why is this a question? Um, why is there so much anxiety over seeing God? Why in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah says, I saw God, I saw the Lord, he describes everything else. Yeah. There's this anxiety over seeing God because if you, the man, you, know, you can't see God, or if you do, he's a consuming fire. Um, that anxiety itself, even among the debates, shows the type of God we're dealing with. Yeah. That this is the one God. And um, by the way, um, um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 8, right, Paul literally cites the Shema and distinguishes between Father and Son within the Shema, not beside the Shema, within it. Father and Son he sees there. So this is... And, and this isn't debated. If you look at Paul's letters, it's amazing. Like yeah. the debates are over the how to hold the covenants together uh, in Gentile inclusion. And yet they can throw out these titles of Christ without even, you know, needing to defend it. So um, I, I figured I'd t- take this point to show that once again, when he says this is not set forth in the scriptures, that's not true. When you hear people say that this stuff wasn't relevant till the Council of Nicaea, that's, right. that's not true. That's right. it's, it's historically and factually untrue. Yeah. Now, you may disagree with the Trinity. You may think your pattern makes more sense of Scripture than the Trinity. I want to see those arguments. Yeah. But it is not true to say that this was made up at the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. It is not true to say this is made up by the New Testament authors. It's yeah. just not true. True. Okay. Let's continue on with Holland. Uh, 
and of course he does the Constantine Council of Nicaea thing. Um, in such creeds, this is Holland's words, in such creeds all three members are separate persons, but they are a single being, the oft-noted mystery of the Trinity. They are three distinct persons, yet not three gods, but one. All three persons are incomprehensible, yet it is one God who is incomprehensible. Now, if you listen to his tone in this, you can listen to the talk or watch it. You'll see that this is them taking a shot at us, it's, right? It's a little sassy. It's a little sassy, and that's fine. We're yeah. sassy here. Oh, yeah. I'm totally okay with, if I can give it, I want to, I can take it. Oh, yeah. Right. That being said, notice how he, he says, not three gods, but one. That's going to be key here in a second. We agree with our critics on at least that point that such a formulation for divinity is truly incomprehensible. That's again the assumption that he would be. Mm-hmm. With such a confusing definition of God being imposed upon the church, see that? There's the conspiracy. Yeah. It's being imposed on the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Irenaeus, I mean, that's not being imposed. That's no. defending the church. And it's funny, too, that a lot of people will know about the martyrdoms and the, the suffering that many of the church leaders went through. Um, it's amazing reading even their poetry on death, mm. by the way, some of these church fathers. Some of them died. Some of them came to the council maimed. So they were willing to die for it yeah. just to compromise it at the council. Yeah, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. all right. Even if you disagree, I, when I, I want LDS people to hear me say this. Even if you disagree, I'm, what I'm pointing out is there are factual errors with how it's often talked about mm-hmm. that, that need to be corrected. Um, so... Cheap shots. Yes. Um, With such a confusing definition of God being imposed upon the church, little wonder that a 4th century monk cried out, Woe is me, they've taken my God away from me, and I know not whom to adore or to address. Now, the impression is that that's about the Trinity, right? Specifically. That's actually not true. I don't have time to go into it. If we do a bandless episode, I will. I actually looked at the source, looked at the whole debate. It was a monastic debate over uh, whether it was appropriate for a particular monk to hold the idea of God when he prayed in his mind as a man. Mm. And the whole monastic community said that's a heresy mm. and started warning against this idea of taking image and likeness literally uh, in the sense of physical yeah. likeness. Of course, I do think there's a proleptic form of that for the incarnation that he would assume flesh. But yeah. but the point being, they were taking it this way, just assuming that God was a man uh, if we say Jesus is God, but we wouldn't say the man Jesus is all of God, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't go both ways for us. And so it's an interesting debate, but yeah. it, once again, he gave the impression that, you know, the Trinity's imposed on the church, and then this monk is crying out, they've stolen God. Mm-hmm. That's, it's just not true, even by their own citations. And you, we'll point this out on some talks when it's relevant, that sometimes the citations by LDS general authorities are very iffy mm-hmm. at best. Okay, how are we to trust, love, worship, to say nothing of strive to be like one who is incomprehensible and unknowable? Um, once again, different view of God, yeah. different view of man. Yep. And then, of course, he says, well, who's Jesus praying to? Once again, these are not aimed. Once again, I think this is where you see that he sees the, the basic definition we have, but he doesn't. He doesn't express even an awareness of how we, as if the church fathers never read these passages yeah. of Christ praying to the Father. Mm-hmm. Like, we've dealt with this people. That's right. Uh, and if you're interested in hearing responses, we would love to do it here on this podcast. But yeah. it's not like we've never heard that before. Yeah. yeah. And again, the the whole premise behind this podcast, yes. it's the title is Distinctive Christianity. Yes. Right? So... 
our our whole aim here is to make the distinctions that have been critically made throughout the centuries, throughout the entire history of the church, to define what true Christianity is versus something that has become other than. And one of the most critical distinctions that has been made throughout the history of the church is that distinction between creator and creation. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's being gone after here. You know, if we can't comprehend him, how can we be like him? So we need to make a God that we can comprehend so that we can essentially bring him down to our level and know how we can be like him. The whole point of Christianity from the very beginning and, and even in Judaism was you can't comprehend God fully. He is not like us. No. And that's what makes the mystery of the incarnation that's being presented in John 1 so mind-boggling. And that's why John is stretching for language, like Lagos. He's just trying to find something, you know, yeah. <laughs> that can that can help to express to, to a, a, a Jewish audience that's in a Greek world mm-hmm. um, who Christ is. Yeah. That the he word is the God man was made flesh, tabernacled yeah. among us. And if you think of the what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and you think of this is the same God that you know killed priests for doing it wrong. Yeah, right. Nadab and Abihu. I'm holy. Yep. Right. This is a God who, when Moses said, "I want to see your glory," he said, "No." Yeah. I I, I like you too much. Yep. <laughs> Okay. And yet that God was in flesh. In fact, to quote Irenaeus, God became small in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, we're not saying that all of the early church fathers had the exact articulation that we do now, yeah. but it's there conceptually. Yeah. That's, that's really the issue, right? How we use words to guard the faith better when it, when it confronts new issues. And uh, so... Okay, um, let me just focus one more quote, and then that's it for this Holland talk. Once again, remember, he said, not three gods, but one, right? And then he says this later, to acknowledge the scriptural evidence that otherwise perfectly united members of the Godhead are nevertheless separate and distinct beings is not to be guilty of polytheism. And I want to say respectfully, that's yeah. totally bogus. You just said three gods. Three gods. Yeah. That what does polytheism has a meaning? Yeah. More than one god. Mm-hmm. More than one god. If they are three gods, that's polytheism. Yep. And by the way, I do know some BYU scholars will own that, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in fact, I've heard a story of a professor going in and saying. Are we monotheists or polytheists? And he's like, like, well, we worship only one God. Which God, right? Like, which one don't you worship? Like, it's polytheism. Yeah. And 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 owning that, it is rather part of the great revelation Jesus came to deliver concerning the nature of divine beings. And this is the last point. This is amazing. Here's the deeper Mormon conception at its best in the most recent publications I've seen. It is rather, so Jesus, once again, it's not that the gospel's news about him in the sense that he is really the good news. Um, Jesus came to deliver a great revelation, quote, concerning the nature of divine beings, plural. Mm. Perhaps the apostle Paul said it best. Listen to this. This is one of the most incredible citations I've ever seen anyone make. Christ Jesus being in the form of God, of course, once again, the 
dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is what Jesus came to teach, according to Jeffrey R. Holland. <sighs> what do you do with that? I mean, this, I mean, this him the, that he's uh, citing. The first commandment comes to mind. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, there's just so much. Like, yeah. once again, Jesus is asked in Mark 12, and I'm going to say this probably after episode, what is the greatest commandment? Mm-hmm. And we always say, love God, love neighbor. You skipped a part. He starts with the Shema, the foundational prayer of Israel, mm-hmm. and the foundational prayer of Christians. In fact, in the Nicene right. Creed you read earlier, right? It's the first line. Yep. We believe in one God. We believe in one God. That's right. Now, that God is complex in his unity. Mm-hmm. It is true. And um, so we need to be careful on how we articulate that. Yeah. But we're not coming to God like he's one of us. Yeah. Um, and we certainly don't think that the reason Jesus came was to reveal, to deliver a message concerning the nature of divine beings, that it's not robbery to be equal to God. Yeah. That, that is That's blasphemous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just to be really, I mean, really direct. Um, just oof. when when the Most High God, who spoke in all that we know, yeah. came into existence, including us, says, "You shall have no other gods before me." Yeah, and then you have teaching from this apostle, you know, um, that hey, Jesus came to teach us that it's not robbery to attain to that. Yeah. Ugh. Even in this it's passage, hard. it's hard yeah, to hear. It, it yeah. is the the only God, the unique God, right? That's how this section of John yeah ends. And it, you know, I think just because we're we need to wrap up here, we've already gone. Hopefully, not too long. Hopefully, folks are sticking with us here because I've really enjoyed this conversation. Hope hope listeners do too. But we would just want to compel you to worship the God that is revealed in the Bible. Um, he is so glorious, and that's why he is worthy of our worship. You know, even going back to last week's lesson, this is why we fall on our face before him in awe, uh, even if he's a baby in a manger, <laughs> you know, um, which I guess he would have been in a manger at that point, but you get the, you get the idea. Yeah. Is we, we are talking about Jesus, who is uh, the image of the invisible God. The invisible God. The invisible God. And he is the word become flesh. Um, he is this most high God. And he has been revealed to us in, in flesh and bone in an incredible sense, not laying aside one bit of his deity. That is exactly what John is trying to preserve. In John chapter 1, he is trying to show throughout his gospel even that Jesus Jesus never became less than God. Um, that wasn't what was meant by his humiliation. He was always perfectly, fully, truly God. And the only thing he added in his incarnation was his flesh. Um, he didn't, you know, substitute one for the other. And for us, not yeah, for himself. That's right. Yeah, for our sake. Yeah. Um, he took on flesh and suffered and, uh, well, lived righteously, suffered and died. Uh, to take our punishment so that we could be made righteous in God's sight. And uh, this is a glorious God. This is a good uh, gospel that this God came to preach, proclaim, 
and accomplish in our place. And we would just compel you to worship him. Absolutely. May I end with this? Let's read the actual hymn Mm. that Holland cited. Yeah to end on. And once again, for those that want to say, and you'll hear this out there, only John teaches that Christ was God. Well, you have a problem there. And even by the way, some honest non-believers will point this out. Effie Peters comes to mind that there's a huge issue with that, um, with the kind of Reza Aslan kind of stuff uh, that's popular today that you start with a man and end up with a God and John. Well, what about the letters of Paul that are earlier? Yep. And the earliest Christology is the highest. Listen to this. This is how Paul, uh, probably citing a hymn, so that predates the writing of this. That's right. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Messiah Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think of Genesis 3, grasping at the fruit, right, to become gods themselves. No, this Christ... This man, Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had it. It's not something he needed to attain, not something he needed to get, but emptied himself. Notice this is not something the Father does to the Son. Christ empties himself by taking the form of a slave in humanity, right? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form meaning that's not what he was before. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's good stuff. Join us again next week. Um, feel free to send us any questions you want us to discuss, distinctivechristianity at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next week.